0: All right, so we are finishing up this brief series on the prayers of Paul Um, this Sunday. This is the fourth of four weeks. And if this is your first week here, you can always pick up the ones that you missed. Um, You can look them up online and and listen to them there. Um, But we're looking at four different prayers in the New Testament in Paul's letters, the Apostle Paul. And this morning, we're going to look at the prayer in 1 Thessalonians 3. It was at the end of what Chelsea read, verses 11 to 13. Before we dive in, though, I want to just ask the question, kind of rhetorical, but um, I'll give one answer that's probably common for most of us. Why don't we pray like we ought? I don't think any of us would probably say, yeah, I totally got this. I am like, you know, the Navy SEAL of Christian prayers. Um... Why don't we pray as we ought? We, we give lots of excuses. One of the ones that's typical, probably near the top of the list if we were to just you know, raise our hands and answer would be busyness, right? We're too busy. Well, sorry to step on your toes, but let's just stop trying to convince ourselves of that one. It's just not true, right? Like if we're honest with ourselves, Does your prayer life thrive on vacation? Probably not. So maybe it's not a matter of time, right? So this is kind of a silly illustration, but this is part of the point, is that prayerlessness is kind of silly if we think about reality. So this book, um, A Call to Spiritual Reformation by D.A. Carson, is a book on the prayers of Paul. And at one point, he writes this, Lillian Guild tells an amusing story of an occasion where she and her husband were driving along and happened to notice a late model Cadillac with its hood up, parked at the side of the road. Its driver appeared somewhat perplexed and agitated. Mrs. Guild and her husband pulled over to see if they could offer assistance. The stranded driver hastily and somewhat sheepishly explained that he had known when he left home that he was rather low on fuel, but he had been in a great hurry to get to an important business meeting, so he had not taken time to fill up his tank. The Cadillac needed nothing more than refueling. The guilds happened to have a spare gallon of fuel with them, so they emptied it into the thirsty Cadillac and told the, other driver, told the other driver of a service station a few miles down the road. Thanking them profusely, he sped off. Twelve miles or so later, this car obviously did not get very good gas mileage, um, <laughs> they saw the same car hood up, stranded at the side of the road. The same driver, no less bemused than the first time and even more agitated, was pathetically grateful when they pulled over again. You guessed it. He was in such a hurry for his business meeting that he had decided to skip the service station and press on in the dim hope that the gallon he had received would take him to his destination. It's hard to believe anyone would be so stupid until we remember that that is exactly how many of us go about the business of Christian living. So I think we just need to set that excuse aside like none of us was too busy to eat and drink this past week. Okay, maybe lunch one day. But you're not going to go that long because you need to drink water. You need to eat food if you're going to survive and keep going. You can connect the dots, right? So why don't we pray? It's not that we're too busy. I wonder, we don't really think it's Worth it. Now, there could be some ignorance underneath that. We don't, we're not totally aware of how needy we are. It could be some immaturity. You know, we didn't grow in our understanding of just how things work and how willing and able God is to help us. It could also be some cynicism underneath, right? Well, it doesn't seem to do any good in the past. I prayed for this, 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 over and over and over again, and where did it get me? Seems like a waste of time. So if we're really going to grow in prayer, we're going to need to realize that our praying is really a result of what we believe about who God is and who we are and even who others are. So Paul's prayer here in First Thessalonians 3: 11 to 13 has got a lot of grace, a lot of truth for us. Um, but maybe, maybe, just in light of this illustration at the beginning, you may want to spend some time if, if you see some of that cynicism, some of the that like, yeah, I guess I just don't think it's worth it. It's a, honestly, like maybe the praying, maybe the application starts with getting real with God and just like telling him your honest heart and saying, would you please just deal with these doubts and this cynicism and change my heart so that I trust you and I know that you're good and I believe it? So let's dive in here. Chapter three, let's read verses 11 to 13 again. And then we'll start down through it, but we're also gonna need to catch, um, again, a picture of where we are in the context of this whole book in 1 Thessalonians. So the prayer itself, verses 11 to 13, Paul writes, now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. So, point number one, the example of apostolic love. Okay? And this is where we're going to have to look at this prayer in the context of the book itself and Paul's relationship with these Christians in Thessalonica. Okay? Okay? So verse 11, now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. We would probably just kind of blow right over that. But why is that prayer such a priority for Paul? He really wants to get to Thessalonica. If you were paying attention, as Chelsea read, they wanted to go, but Satan hindered them, right? So he still wants to get there. He wants to see them face to face. Paul had planted this church. He saw the gospel change their lives. You can see that right off the bat in chapter one. And Paul's love for these people is just all over the place. It's so evident. So if you look at chapter two, verses seven to 12, notice how Paul describes his ministry, his relationship to them. And he's, he and his apostolic band. So 1 Thessalonians 2, seven. But we were gentle among you, To any of you, while we proclaim to you the gospel of God, you are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you, believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. You see how intimate, how like wholehearted Paul is toward these Thessalonians, like a mother nursing mother with her own children like a father with his children. Look down at verse 17 of chapter 2. This is where Chelsea started reading. But since we were torn away from you, so persecution got kicked up, like, and Paul had to leave town, and it just tore him up inside because they got torn away. So since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time in person, not in heart, like our hearts with you, even though we are not with you in person, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. Because what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at His coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Like at the end, what is really going to matter? Like, oh, look at my, you know, bank account. Look at my, you know, toys that I have. Like, no, we, we're not going to boast in those things. You can't take those things with you. What really matters is investing in people and people's lives being transformed and changed and encouraged and built up through our ministry. That's what's really praiseworthy. That's what we're really going to be um, That's that's what's gonna be to our glory at the end when Jesus returns. So chapter three, verse one, therefore, when we could bear it no longer, like we had to hear how you were doing. There's no texting. There's no email back then. The only way to find out is either write a letter, send somebody. So when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens and we sent Timothy. We can't wait to hear. You know, we, we hope that the... The heat that's been turned up on you, the affliction that you're experiencing means that you're not abandoning the faith, but we're worried about you. We're concerned about you. We sent Timothy, our brother, God's coworker in the gospel, to establish and exhort you that no one would be moved by these afflictions because you yourselves know that we were destined for this. So down in verse five, for this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith. Again, he's just fearful that maybe when the heat got turned up, They bailed, but Timothy came back, brought the good news of their faith and love and that they also longed to see Paul as well. So for this reason, brothers, verse seven, in all our distress and affliction, we've been comforted about you through your faith for now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. (laughs) Like that is what love sounds like. If you are struggling, like, I mean, you can imagine if you're a parent, if your child is wayward and wandering from the Lord, it's killing you. But if they come back and they are trusting in Jesus, oh, now you really live because they are trusting in Jesus and experiencing the abundant life that only he can give. So your life is bound up in their life. Your like peace is bound up in their peace found in jesus so that's what that's what love sounds like for now we live if you are standing fast in the lord so then his prayers flow out of this love and relationship for what thanksgiving can we return to god for you for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our god to see your faith stable and growing is like the best thing it's like christmas as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. So these new believers, you know, he wants to just go and help them grow. So you can see how verse 10 now leads right into verses 11 to 13. It's parallel to that. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. Why? Because we love you and we want what's best for you and we want to come and build up your faith. So do you see the apostolic example of love that is behind this prayer, that's underneath this prayer, that is driving this prayer? May our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you We love you, we're praying for you, for your faith and your love to grow. And we wanna come and be with you face to face and help you grow even more because of our love for you. So D.A. Carson, um, one of my seminary professors, writes this, again, it's in this book here, called A Spiritual Reformate. Did I mention this already? Yeah, I quoted from that, there you go, it's in there. Um, So he writes this, here is a Christian, Paul, So committed to the well-being of other Christians, especially new Christians, that he is simply burning up inside to be with them, to help them, to nurture them, to feed them, to stabilize them, to establish an adequate foundation for them. Small wonder, then, that he devotes himself to praying for them when he finds he cannot visit them personally. This is typical of Paul. He never descends to the level of the mere professional. Paul is a passionate man, deeply enmeshed in the lives of real people. That is why he can say elsewhere, besides everything else, I face the daily pressure of my concern for all the churches. This is not someone intoxicated with ideas, but unconcerned about people. Nor is it someone who's content to minister at a distance through the books he's written, perhaps, or through younger emissaries. No, this man's ministry is not designed first and foremost to produce ideas, books, or junior colleagues, but to serve the people of God And to do this, this, he is passionately committed. And that passion shapes the prayers he utters on their behalf. So this is the heart of the disciple of Jesus. So this isn't just Paul, the super Christian. This is Paul giving his example to the Thessalonians so that they would follow him as he follows Christ. And the same for us. This is the heart of the disciple of Jesus to disciple and invest in the lives of others. So it's his love for them that led him to constant prayer for them. And it's also the desire for more and more in-person ministry to them to strengthen them. So we should ask ourselves, who are we sharing our lives with like this? It can be easy to just stand at the front and teach. Obviously, I need to, preach this sermon to myself right easy to just do this but if I'm never involved or if you teach in some way but you're never involved in the lives of people to invest personally that's not how Jesus ministered that's not how we're called to minister so who are we sharing our lives with like this who are we praying for like this who should we be praying for like this? And how can we also, following in Paul's footsteps, minister to others in order to build up and strengthen their faith? So do you see there's complementary. It's like, it's like um, the prayer and you being the answer to your own prayer, in a sense. It's both and, not either or. So if we're going to grow in prayer, we're going to need to grow in love because the love will both lead to the prayer and the love will, be, will follow from the prayer as well, in a sense, as part of the answer to that prayer. So we can pray these prayers for our own hearts so that we will live out this love that Paul models and we also pray for others like Paul prays. So let's look at the content of this prayer now. We've seen the example of apostolic love, and may we follow in Paul's footsteps, but secondly, the example of apostolic prayer. What does Paul pray for, and how should that teach and shape how we pray? So we're all going to learn how to pray somewhere from someone. In fact, we all have already to some degree. I mean, have you ever heard someone start all their petitions with, I just want to I just want to, Lord, I just want to. You learn that somewhere. Because, you know, that's kind of a certain cultural demographic, kind of the way that people talk, right? Or have you ever heard someone pray and they just keep repeating God's name over and over and over and over and over again throughout the prayer? Well, do you talk to other people like that? repeating their name over, and and I'm not not trying to, you know, pick on anyone here. I'm just saying sometimes we get into these, like, um, jargon-like kind of spiritual churchy patterns, and we learned it from somebody, but it's like, that's not really how people pray in the Bible. So we actually are intended to learn by imitation, right? We should be imitating Jesus and Paul and the psalmists and those who have been shaped by the Bible. And 1 Thessalonians 3 is obviously one example of this kind of prayer. What we pray, how we pray, the content, the priorities are going to be reflected in our prayers. So what does Paul pray for? Well, first that their way would be directed to the Thessalonians because they just want to be back together in person. But look at verse 12. Now may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all. As we do for you, which again, all that context, all that example of Paul's just deep love for these folks so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. So what does the Apostle Paul pray for? Two primary things. That their love will increase. Secondly, so that their hearts will be established blameless in holiness. So first, that their love would increase and abound. And for one another, meaning in the church, and for all, also, those outside the church. So, this kind of love for one another in the church, even that goes against the grain of our natural selfishness, doesn't it? That's why we need grace. That's why we need to pray about these things, so that we can live this out. This was actually strikingly countercultural in the first century. Okay? It's going to be strikingly countercultural in our day as well, but listen to some of the background. Chris touched on this last week, as far as some of the nature of the relationships in the first century. Um, So this is kind of complimentary to the things that Chris mentioned last week. Um, Again, this is D.A. Carson, and he writes this. It's important to recognize how much such conduct would fly in the face of the conventions of the ancient world, this love for everyone in the church and for all. In most layers of Greco-Roman society, a kind of social contract existed between those perceived to be benefactors and everyone else. Entire sets of relationships turned on these customs. A fairly well-to-do person might dispense food, preferment, employment, honor, money. In return, that person demanded loyalty, various forms of service, or privileged information. If you had any hope of climbing up within the system, it was essential to meet these obligations. An ordinary worker would not be inclined to show particular affection or loyalty to his co-workers, because they were on the same level with him. He would want to show loyalty and affection to someone who was his benefactor, someone a little higher up the pecking order, because that would ultimately benefit him. Paul will not have it, not in the church or even in the way Christians treat outsiders. True, he elsewhere insists that Christians honor those to whom honor is due. Nevertheless, he here prays that the Christians' love would increase in overflow for each other, that is for fellow believers in the church, and for everyone else, that is for those outside the fellowship. Similarly, he writes a little later in the letter, make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always try to be kind to each other and to everyone else. So Christian love is not mainly Loving the lovely, loving those who are easy for you to love, loving those who will love you in return. You actually don't even need any supernatural grace to do that, right? That was Jesus' point Luke 6. Even the pagans do that. Love those who love them. This is love for one another in the church, not just a preferred click or a subset of people. This is hard. We need supernatural grace for this, right? So just a little test maybe. Just think about walking in this morning. This is a rhetorical question. You can answer it in your head. So what happened when you walked in this morning? Were there people that you like, you see them, you immediately smile, you love to see that person, and you move toward that person, and you start talking? But where there are also some people, maybe that you, to be honest, can't stand and you move to avoid. Is there anybody in that category in here? So there's this spot early on in C.S. Lewis's screw tape letters, um, which is this um, kind of opposite world piece, you know, where he's pretending to be a senior demon writing to a junior demon to teach him how to really attack and undermine the faith of this new believer, his patient. Okay? So you got to have that in mind. Otherwise, this is going to sound really weird. Okay? So he says, one of our great allies at present is the church itself. Do not misunderstand me. I do not mean the church as we see her spread out through all time and space and rooted in eternity, terrible as an army with banners. That, I confess, is a spectacle which makes our boldest tempters uneasy. But fortunately, it's quite invisible to these humans. All your patient sees is the half-finished sham Gothic erection on the new building estate. When he goes inside, he sees the local local grocer with rather an oily expression on his face bustling up to him. Thankfully, I don't think we have any local grocers with oily whatever, Um, so nobody in in view here in particular. When he gets to his pew and looks round, he sees just that selection of his neighbors whom he hitherto avoided. You want to lean pretty heavily on those neighbors, make his mind flit to and fro between an expression like the body of Christ and the actual faces in the next pew. It matters very little, of course, what kind of people that next pew really contains. You may know one of them to be a great warrior on the enemy's side. The enemy would be God, obviously. No matter, your patient thinks to our Father below Your patient, thanks to our Father below, is a fool, provided that any of those neighbors sing out of tune or have boots that squeak or double chins or odd clothes. Okay, so maybe those are dumb examples, but somebody may have said something to you in the past that really just rubbed you the wrong way, and ever since, that's what you think of when you see them when you walk in the door and you just... Avoid them. So again, this call to love. May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another. Like all the one another's. Which is a supernatural calling. Which is why you need to pray for grace to actually live this out. Christian life, life is supernatural after all, right? So it's love one for the other. Like loving all of our brothers and sisters. And then also loving those outside the church as well. In fact, the Thessalonians were outsiders until Paul loved them enough with the truth of the gospel and they were brought in. They were brought to faith in Jesus and became the church family that they were in Thessalonica. So he's praying for them and he's discipling them to follow him in his Christ-like footsteps. And God intends to shape us the same way. To cause our love to abound toward all of our brothers and sisters. Obviously, we can't go as deep as we'd like with everybody, right? We're all limited. But we should love everybody sincerely. We should actually pray for that. We should seek to live, out, live it out that way. And we need supernatural grace to do so. So, why? To what purpose? Like, why did the Thessalonians and why do, do we need our love to increase? Well, look at how Paul answers that. So that our hearts will be established blameless in holiness. Or to put it simply, so that we'll be ready for the return of Jesus. So this word for established means to make firm, to support, to strengthen. So our hearts need strengthened in order to love as we ought to love. The heart, again, Chris Chris mentioned this last week because there's some parallels with the passage that he preached from 2 Thessalonians 2. The heart's the control center of our lives, the place of our loves and our will. It's the source of our motives. And if we are not strengthened and established and sanctified at the core, our Christianity is gonna be just a veneer of behavior modification. You know, we can look the part. Authentic change and growth has to take place at the heart, heart level. So remember this prayer is aimed at the Thessalonians and us to be ready at the day of judgment, the day of Christ's return. So th- think about Matthew 25 and the surprise. Some people who thought they were believers are surprised. Wait, wait, wait. When did we see you naked or in prison or whatever, sick, and not take care of you? Well, insofar as you did not do this unto the least of these, my brothers, you didn't do it unto me. No love. But those who were sheep, the genuine believers in that passage, they loved the least of these. And so they were ready at the return of Christ. So Paul wants the Thessalonians and he wants us to be ready. He wants their faith and love to be sincere and ours to be sincere. Like he does not want the warning that Jesus gives in Matthew 15 to be true for them or for us, right? These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me and their worship is in vain. So if our hearts are strengthened and established in love, like Paul's praying here, love to God, love to others, it's because we've been changed by the grace and love of God at the core of who we are. And the rock-solid reality of that change gives us confidence before the Lord on the day of his return. We don't need to fear. Perfect love casts out fear. We know his amazing love toward us in that while we were still sinners, he sent Jesus to die for us. So, if our Christianity is just veneer, just behavior modification, and it hasn't sunk to the core of who we are, then that's dangerous. Like 1 Corinthians 4, 5, Therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness, and will disclose the purposes of the heart. So Paul wants these people to be ready, and he wants us to be ready. God wants us to be ready. And so there's this warning, this kind of prayer and preparation, like is our faith the real thing? Has it sunk to the core of who we are, or is it just veneer behavior modification? Our hearts need to be established in real faith and hope and love. And so do the hearts of our brothers and sisters. So Paul prays along these lines for them. That he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness. So, like, what are your connotations with holiness? I mean, it can have connotations, you know, all that Christians don't do or shouldn't do. And that can be part of what it means to be holy, you know, prohibitions. Prohibitions. So to be holy means to be set apart. We are set apart from things. So yes, it's stuff that we separate ourselves from, sinful things. But even more importantly, the path of holiness is what we are set apart for, not just what we're set apart from. So notice the logic, the focus and the logic of this passage. In this prayer, love is actually the key to holiness. You see this? May the Lord make you increase and abound in love so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness. You need abounding love if you're going to be established in holiness. Okay, we could say it this way. To be holy is to be set apart for. It's to be devoted to God. And so it's to be holy, set apart from selfishness, self-protection, self-righteousness but set apart for love of God, love for your spiritual family and love for all. Love is actually the key to holiness or holiness is evidenced by increasing love to say it the other way around. So the primary issue is not, issue is not you know, how we are separated from the world, but how are we dedicated to loving God and his people and loving the lost in the world? kind of like the flow of thought in john 17 in that prayer of jesus before he went to the cross we are in the world but we're not of the world but most of all we are in the world for the world to shine the light of christ in this dark world So Paul here is praying with eternity in view. He prays, verse 13, that the Lord Jesus may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. So all of human history, it is headed, and your life and my life is headed inevitably, unstoppably toward that final day. Inescapably, we're all moving there. We will give an account To the judge of all the earth and so will all those that we love all those people we rub shoulders with and we all need to be ready for that final reckoning so if you're here and you're not sure yet what you believe if you're not yet a christian like you need to know that judgment day is coming and you will either stand on your own merits And if you stand on your own merits, none of us can stand. I mean, who's lived up to their own standards, let alone God's standards? We've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So you can either stand before the judge and say, what? I deserve heaven? No, we're in trouble if we're standing on our own merits. We deserve judgment, or you can stand in Christ. You can recognize now, there's no way I could be righteous before God. My sin separates, he's holy, I am not. I need a savior. And that's exactly why Jesus came. To pay for your sins so that you could be reconciled to God. You can trust in Jesus, he takes your sin and he gives you his righteousness. So that you can be reconciled to God and actually face that final day with confidence. You stand before the judge, not in your own merits, but in the merits of Christ, in the righteousness of Christ. So that's the only way we're going to be ready for that final day. But also realize our faith, getting worked out, living out this faith and loving as Christ has loved us, do you realize that your prayers For these things are part of God's means to bring other people safely home through the final judgment and on into glory. Like, here is Paul's prayer. It has eternal significance in the lives of these Thessalonians because God not only ordains the ends, but also the means. Our prayers are eternally significant. You realize that? Like, your prayers for your community group members, that we would persevere in the faith, that we keep trusting God, Like those are eternally significant for your kids, for your grandkids. So how can we take up the call to pray like this for specific people in the days and the months to come? If we haven't kind of worked out a consistent like workable prayer plan, let's do this. Do you see how vitally important, eternally significant this is? If we see that, then we'll figure out, okay Lord, Help me build this into my life. How in the world can I keep driving the Cadillac? It, you know, It's not going to go anywhere if it doesn't have any gas. I've got to depend on you. Other people need your grace and your strength and your help. So this prayer, dual focus, it's what we need, but it's also what we should be praying for others who also need the same thing so let's remember kind of where we began why don't we pray we say we're too busy it's not really it maybe it could be we're afraid to be alone with god like in the light because there's some sin we're not willing to deal with and it's kind of like standing in the spotlight or like i said before maybe it's we don't think it's worth the time if we're honest or if it'll really make a difference Well, this passage is one of many that shows how vital prayer is for us and others so that we're ready for the final day. So our prayer life is reflective of what we believe about God. And it can betray either our faith in the goodness and love of God or betray our doubt and cynicism of the goodness of God. So let's consider point number three, the source of it all. Where does all this grace come from? You know, in a sense, this is obvious, but you realize if we don't pray, it has everything to do with the character of God, what we believe about Him. So, point number three, the source of it all. Let's look again at verse 11. Now, may our God and Father Himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord, the Lord Jesus, make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. So, you know, when we walk through that first point of Paul's example, where he's like a nursing mother, where he's like a loving father, where he's just like, you know, now we really live when we know that you're standing firm in your faith. Like, what's the response to that? Isn't that beautiful? Isn't it commendable? You see the beauty of that kind of sacrificial, authentic, wholehearted love? Like, don't you want to be led by someone like that? Don't you want to become like someone? Don't you want to become someone like that? Well, what's the source of all this love in Paul? Well, of course, it's our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus, the one to whom he prays. Paul has been changed by the very same love and grace that he's praying for the Thessalonians. And his sacrificial love for them is reflecting the sacrificial love of the Lord Jesus that he's experienced. And the joy that Paul finds in life change in the Thessalonians is really just reflective of the heart of God. You know, 2 Thessalonians 2 and 3 are Paul's way of saying, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Well, where does that heart come from? <laughs> it comes from God the Father. Paul's joys are so shaped by God that he rejoices over what God rejoices over. What brings God the greatest joy brings Paul the greatest joy. You remember Luke 15, the lost coin, the lost sheep, the lost sons? There's a party thrown in heaven when one sinner repents. That's what brings God joy. And why did Jesus become a man, humble himself, like a slave, even to the point of death on a cross, a shameful cross, and none of that got in the way of what he aimed to do? For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. The joy of bringing his people into relationship with himself. So if you are in Christ, it is all of grace from God, from the heart of God. And and him bringing you in and you repenting and trusting Jesus brings him great joy. If you are even this morning like convicted of prayerlessness and freshly encouraged to grow in dependence and, you know, have your prayer priorities shaped by scripture, even that it's God at work. He's the source of every good and perfect gift. If anyone has ever prayed any of these things for you, if anyone has ever loved you and discipled you and invested in you like Paul has done for the Thessalonians, it's God's grace in their lives pouring out into your life. He is the source of every good gift and grace. From him and through him and to him are all things. So don't let cynicism dry up your soul and kill your prayer life and your communion with God. It's the work of the evil one. Like the earliest attack and temptation is, did he really say, like, he's holding out on you. He's gonna steal your joy if you actually obey him. Instead, Jesus says, ask Know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your heavenly father, your father who's in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? Do you see how whether you ask, seek, and knock has everything to do with what you believe about the heart of the father? It's the character of the one, the three in one, to whom we pray, the source of all these good things. And so with the character of a good and gracious God in mind, let's look at one final passage to strengthen our confidence here. So turn to the end of 1 Thessalonians. There's another prayer that has a lot of overlap with 3.11 to 13. It's found at 5.23. So just flip a page. If you're using the Pew Bible, it's just on the next page, 9.88. 9.88. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you hear the overlap? Completely sanctified, kept blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. That sounds a lot like that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this work of sanctification, of of growing us, making us more like Jesus, it doesn't happen all at once. None of us will ever arrive in this life. But that is the day. The day of Jesus' return is the day that we will arrive at the end. And because God's grace is more stubborn and wonderful than even our prone to wander hearts we will be able to stand with confidence before our God and Father and our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ without anything to fear we will hear well done good and faithful servant enter into the joy of your master so listen brothers and sisters surely there are many trials and toils and snares between us and that day. So we must pray for our own hearts and for our brothers and sisters, but let's also remember, verse 24, he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Amen. Let's pray, and we're gonna sing before we're dismissed. Oh God, you are faithful and you who began a good work will be faithful to complete it. And thank you that we can have confidence in that promise and we can have confidence in your good fatherly heart. If we, though we're evil, give good gifts to our children, how much more will you give good things to those who ask you in the name of your son who lived and died so that all of your grace and mercy and patience and kindness and help and strength and wisdom is ours for the asking for ourselves and also for our dear brothers and sisters. So Lord, teach us to pray. Help us to pray. And help us to love like you have loved us. In Jesus' name and for his sake, amen.